Welcome to the Dr. Bub's Performance Podcast, giving you the latest evidence-based research and cutting-edge insights for elite mental and physical performance. He's connecting you directly with the world's leading experts and coaches. Here's your host, Dr. Bubs. Hey everyone, welcome back to Season 3 of the Dr. Bubs Performance Podcast, where you will find evidence-based insights from world-leading experts to inform your practice. Exciting action in the MMA this past weekend in London, England. What an intense sport. It's really incredibly demanding from a physical standpoint, as well as technical, tactical, psychological. It really does tick all the boxes. And on that note, I'm excited to be speaking today with Dr. Corey Peacock, PhD, to talk all things MMA. In this episode, Corey shares his insights into understanding the physical demands of MMA fighters. He'll also talk about the key physiological tests he uses to assess an athlete's profile, fitness level, and performance metrics to guide the training plan during camp. He'll also share his recent work with Kamaru Usman, newly crowned UFC welterweight champ, and the nuances of working with elite fighters. Corey and I also talk about head trauma, what athletes can do from a training standpoint to mitigate the risk, his research on sleep, physical performance, and injuries in professional MMA fighters, his take on the evolution of research in this area, and much, much more. As usual, you can find links and the podcast summary in the show notes at drbubs.com forward slash podcast. And if you're interested more on this topic, then please circle back to Season 2, Episode 46 with Dr. Peacock's colleague, Dr. Doug Kalman, on Making Weight, Combat Sports, and Performance Nutrition. Season 2, episode 19 on high-dose omega-3 use and concussions with Dr. Michael Lewis and another colleague of Dr. Peacock's. Season 1, episode 34 with Dr. Jose Antonio, evidence-based supplements for improving athletic performance. Remember, you can check out all these experts and more on YouTube, iTunes, or your favorite podcasting platform. Make sure you subscribe because you don't want to miss any of the action this year. Awesome, before we dive in, in case you missed it, My new book, Peak, The New Science of Athletic Performance That is Revolutionizing Sports, is now available for pre-order on Amazon, Barnes & Noble, Chapters Indigo, or your local booksellers. And if you do pick up a pre-order, you'll get some free bonus material and a chance to win lots of really cool stuff there. So you can check out the details of that at drbubs.com forward slash peak. Terrific. A quick word from the episode sponsor here, Totem Sport. Totem Sport is the world's only 100% natural supplement. No sugar, no artificial flavors, absolutely nothing added. What is it? Totem Sport is the world's purest mineral-rich ocean water. Collected above natural algae blooms in the Atlantic Ocean, Totem Sport is the only sport drink supplement that contains all 78 naturally clear minerals and trace elements. Totem Sport is the evolution of hydration, the world's only 100% sport drink, tested and approved by Informed Sport and Informed Choice. Use the promo code BUBS10, B-U-B-B-S-10, at checkout and save 10% at totemsport.com and defy the norm. All right, let's get ready to rumble season three, episode 12. Enjoy. My guest today is Dr. Corey Peacock, the head performance coach and sports scientist at Peacock Performance, Inc., providing strength and conditioning, physiological analysis, and injury prevention methodologies for some of the world's elite combat athletes, including Anthony Rumble Johnson, Volkan Ozdemir, 
Michael Chandler Jr., Chris Algieri, just to name a few. A former collegiate football player, Corey works closely with many professionals from the NFL, NHL, MMA, NCAA football, and along with coaching, serves as an associate professor in the Department of Health and Human Performance at Nova Southeastern University, and a, as a researcher, has contributed multiple peer-reviewed publications integrating the fields of exercise, physiology, athletic performance, and supplementation. Corey, really appreciate you taking the time today. Absolutely. Looking forward to it. Fantastic. Well, listen, can we kick things off here with perhaps giving people a little bit more background to your journey, to your current role um, as performance coach and working at uh, Nova Southeastern? Absolutely. Um, so I started off a collegiate football player. Um, football really basically kind of advanced my education, gave me an opportunity to to get an undergrad and a master's uh, while playing, and then also was the catalyst for getting into my doctoral work at Kent State University. When I finished my PhD at Kent State, I moved down to South Florida and spent time with a lot of the uh, professional organizations around here. I also coached at University of Miami uh, football, strength and conditioning as well, wow. and 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 you know, an associate professor at Nova Southeastern University throughout this journey. So um, it's been a nice thing to be able to, to put together the, the, the scientific aspects of academia along with the, the practical aspects of being on the floor as a uh, strength and conditioning coach, performance coach. Um, and then just recently, you know, within the past couple of years, I made that transition into a, a new venture of mixed martial arts. And I'm fortunate enough to work with um, – you know, I would say roughly about 35 of the world's elite mixed martial artists, boxers, kickboxers, um, combat practitioners around the world. So um, it, it's been a wild journey, but, um, you know, still as we go and and hopefully the continued success will, you know, hopefully we'll continue with that. Absolutely. And uh, Corey, everything starts with understanding the physical demands of sport. And of course, as a physiologist and a sports scientist, You've worked with a wide range of athletes. So yeah. what are the physical demands here for mixed martial arts fighters? Well, I think mixed martial arts is a, a very tricky uh, sport to really pinpoint. I think realistically, if you put 10 of the, you know, 10 people that I consider physiological experts and exercise physiologists, I think their understanding and their explanation of the demand of the sport would be different. And I think that's what really has drawn me. And I think that's what's really drawn me to the sport is that idea that that I was, you know, the way I analyzed the sport five years ago is different than how I analyze the sport now. It's it's evolving. The sport's changing. And with those demands, I think you, you really get into a situation where it's it's difficult to pinpoint just exactly what the demands are. Um, you know, when you look at the setup of the actual sport of MMA, you're looking at three five minute rounds. Uh, five, five minute rounds if we're looking at a title fight. So I think that's always going to influence what we're doing in terms of our, our metabolic preparation uh, to, to meet those demands. But realistically, when you look at the sport, you know, there, there's a lot of literature out there that's broken down the sport into basically a, a more of a glycolytic sport where you're looking at about 15 seconds of high intensity effort, followed by about 45 seconds of active recovery, gaining position, and those kind of things. So, you know, I think that gives you a, a foundation of where to begin with the sport. 
Um, but, but as I've started to, and, and maybe it's just the style of our team, you know, I've, I've really started to heavily implement alactic work, especially the closer that we get to the fight, because I believe that the, the style that the majority of the fighters that I'm coaching is, you know, we're, we're known as, you know, power strikers, pressure fighters. Uh, we have a great kickboxing coach and, and everything really focuses on the, the finishing of the fight, the knockout, and the, the, the power shot. So, um, you know, a lot of demands go into the sport when you look at the, the different facets of the striking and the grappling and, and everything that goes into it. 100%. I mean, from an athletic standpoint, it really is fascinating to see just the, the demands that, are, that take place and, you know, these five-minute rounds, um, you know, such a long time when you're actually in the, in the ring, I imagine. And, of course, understanding the athlete profile is also key to this whole process, and I imagine you've got different types of athletes. So, you know, for you, you know, what are some of the fundamental physiological tests that you might use to assess an athlete's profile, fitness levels, different metrics to uncover, you know, maybe it's areas that need to be improved or obviously potentially to guide the training plan during training camp? Sure. Um, so I think with, with our fighters, I, the, the utmost important factor is making sure these guys make weight and make weight safely. So we're, we're definitely going to be doing a body composition analysis to, to begin. Uh, we kind of jump back and forth between the DEXA, which we're going to do about annually on the athletes, just to kind of track where they're at. And we're going to use an in-body uh, to be able to track them during camp a little bit less invasive. And we also get the, uh, we get the water content as well with that reading. We're going to follow that up when we look at performance measures. Um, we're going to do a lactate test. We're going to do a extended Wingate test where we look at multiple bouts of Wingate. Um, we'll do a VO2 max, and we got a couple of different power measures that we're we're analyzing through force plate and uh, different um, different units. So, I mean, it's a wide variety of the different aspects that we're looking at. But ultimately, the idea is to be able to really pinpoint and and understand where this athlete may be lacking and how we can build that into their program and plan moving forward for that particular fight. You know, that that's kind of the tricky thing where, you know, we may find something that we believe is significantly behind on the athlete but in terms of the preparation and what the athlete is going to plan on doing based on their opponent it may not be the proper time to start building or addressing that weakness so you know that that that's where i think this evaluation process is very important but also being able to present that to your you know your specific mma coach and understanding what their game plan is for the particular fighter and how we can advance those things at the same time yeah, it's such a dynamic and fluid environment. I mean, depending on the athlete and when the competition is and how things are progressing, I imagine you've got to stay pretty nimble with how you're going to implement things and obviously having to sometimes potentially have to wait on things, as you mentioned, rather than being able to implement everything depending on timing, et cetera. You know, in an ideal setting, you know, is there a certain amount of time in a training camp that you'd like to have in terms of how often you might repeat some of those tests that you mentioned before? Yeah, I like to, I like to evaluate them about once every 12 weeks. Um, I find that, you know, really breaking up that 12 week period into about three different blocks definitely has been beneficial, you know, and, and that's the, that's the tricky part about this sport is you, you're not, it's not like other sports where you have the luxury of understanding. This is my off season. This is my preseason. This is when we peak 
know, you, you got to keep these athletes. You almost have to do what science tells us we're not capable of doing. <laughs> For sure. And then an athlete almost at that peak year round because, you know, in a sport like this, you might be a guy that is fighting at a local promotion, making a thousand dollars a fight and putting in just the same amount of work. And then a week you have, you know, you might get a phone call and the UFC says, Hey, we'd like for you to fight for the biggest promotion for $40,000 and you need to be ready in one week. So it's one of those things where, you know, these, these opportunities to fight and be able to fight, you know, at a high level are so far and few between that you have to always be ready. And so that, that really makes it, that makes it difficult. But in an ideal world, I would like to have 12 weeks of them. Um, you know, I would like the first four weeks of that realistically just to be that period of time where we're, you know, where we're training, where we're addressing different things like the tissue and being able to recover and be able to build some strength and to really develop that glycolytic system before we move into, in my mind, what would be really an eight-week camp that, you know, you're looking at about four weeks of fight preparation where really looking at more functional strength and power and being able to start developing that anaerobic system um, and the last four weeks being more alactic work, heavy sparring, and being able to incorporate some strength gains along with the, the high amount of volume that they're going to be training on the mats. That's terrific, Corey. And, you know, one of your fighters, Sir Kamaru Usman, recently won the welterweight championship at the UFC. I believe it was UFC 235 beating Tyrone Woodley. And so for a, a fighter like that, um, obviously top of his game, are there nuances to the process that you've talked about here that you're trying to achieve with a fighter like that who's already at the top of their game versus maybe younger fighters who, as you mentioned, need to stay ready because at any chance they might get that, that big fight that's going to really propel their career? You know, that... That is the truth. But I'll be honest with you. Somebody like Kamaru, for instance, Kamaru now for the first time in his career, this is that was his 10th fight. This will be the first time he has the title that he has the luxury and has the, you know, has the pull to be able to better set his fight dates and understand how much rest cover he needs. But up until this point, I mean, even with this title fight, it was rushed. I mean, we really had about six weeks to prepare for it after jumping off of his last fight and the fight before that. So, you know, that's that looking at that moving forward, we're finally in a place with Kamaru that we can address some of the injury concerns, some of the tissue concerns, you know, like he actually just, you know, had double hernia surgery and that's something we've been working around now for, I would say seven camps. Um, but, but that's the idea is, you know, he, he didn't feel comfortable or confident in a position that he could take the time off and be in this title contention. So it's, you have a really short window of opportunity, but yes, you know, there, there's very few of the fighters that have the luxury of being able to, to properly prepare for a fight. I mean, I'll just be as realistic as I can. It's that it's difficult. And, and that's what I think is, makes it so challenging as a strength coach and a physiologist. And it, it's that dynamic atmosphere that, that keeps it like this. And now that Kamaru's on the top, the idea is still there. There are a lot of things that he and I are both aware of addressed with previous evaluations that we need to build on and we have to work on. And now that we actually have some time to do so, I mean, he's already the world champion. He's already considered number one in the world. I think he's going to be even scarier as we build upon these things. 
And for a guy like Kamaru, in terms of obviously you mentioned, you know, making weight is a huge part of the whole process uh, for some athletes, sure. more challenging than others. Are there certain strategies that you used um, that you tend to use with your athletes or that perhaps you use specifically with Kamaru to prepare for that last fight? Yeah. Um, you know, everybody's a little bit different. We're going to we're going to do a lot of metabolic testing and understand what substrates our athletes are are thriving off of. Um, you do have different backgrounds. That's one thing I will say is, you know, I don't, you, you got to be careful in a sport like this because if you think about the real data and, and, you know, maybe there's some listeners that aren't aware of this. I can give you, I'll give you, so I have a 170 pounder fighting in UFC London who actually just weighed in this morning. And I can give you basically his full camp data starting from eight weeks out in our Eight-week evaluation, he weighed 194 pounds. He was 6.2% body fat. Three weeks out, he was 185 pounds at 4.7%. And in my mind, that's where we wanted him to be. That's where we wanted him to fight is that 185 to about 186 mark. Mm -hmm. So realistically, Mm -hmm. going into this week, fight week, we did everything we could to maintain that body weight. So he goes into fight week at about 184 pounds, give or take. And holds that to about 182 going into those last 24 hours. So last night, you know, 24 hours ago, he was weighing 182 pounds. He weighed in this morning at 171 pounds. And, you know, I just talked to him recently. He's been off the scales for about five hours. He's back up to about 181 pounds. So we're through our fluid uh, intake portion of the cut. And now we're starting to go carbohydrate heavy and trying to keep him hovering at about that 185 mark that he spent the last three weeks of his fight. I always think that's a tricky thing where you look at these guys and, you know, I don't know exactly what the, I don't know, maybe it's just an overlooked aspect where everybody focuses so much on making the weight. In my mind, I get it. It is a, it is a tough part. I never want an athlete to claim a tough weight cut on their performance. I never want a weight cut to dictate their performance. But at the end of the day, these guys will make weight. They'll find a way to make weight. It might not be pretty. It might not be what people want to see or how it should done but they can make weight i think the the missing aspect on it is really that refuel and and understanding how to get the athletes back to where they were in camp with the same amount of foods but putting it in the right order and making sure that we are achieving things like glycogen restoration and and all those things that we really want with it and um you know i think people miss that aspect a lot where let's just say for instance you know danny's was weighing 185 for the bulk of his camp now what happens if it's up to 205. That's like wearing a 10-pound weight vest when he goes in a fight, something he's not used to training with. Absolutely. Or vice versa. Let's say he gets up to 178. Now now does he feel as strong as he was? Does he feel as powerful as he was? So I think that's a, it's a really important strategy to make sure we're doing that. Um, in terms of the strategies that I follow, uh, I really like, uh, you know, I have a percentage-based approach to it. But I just think, you know, hearing those numbers, I think people out there would be losing their minds thinking, wait, what the fuck did you just say? (laughs) How much did he lose yet? You know what I mean? And I think people lose their minds with that. And, and, you know, and I think that's a good lesson for anybody out there that really wants to work in the sport of MMA and at the highest level, you have to be aware of, you know, really two things. One, what is your weight cut history? What are you comfortable with? What have you done in the past? Because I can't come in there and say, what you're doing, you know, I can't listen to that and say, well, well, that's not right. That's not how I do it. Well, listen, that's a 20, that's a world champion fighter who's 23 and three. You're going to lose 
interest right away. You have to you have to understand that there is something to what they're doing that has benefited them to be able to do that. Mm-hmm. So it's really making a contribution and trying to improve upon what they've already done in the past. And and realistically, the second thing is, you know, you have to understand that there's not a lot of data on these guys. There's not a lot of research. You know, and you go out there and you look at things like cellular dehydration. You know, research and literature tells you that, you know, depleting two to three percent of your cellular water is is going to be detrimental to your performance. Well, yes, that that might be what we've read, and that might be in eighteen to twenty-two year old physically active recreational college students. But has that been done in these fighters? And 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 that's the one thing that you have to understand is they they are different. They have the ability to lose upwards of five to six percent body weight in that last 24 hours and still go out there and be beaters and world champions and, and all of those things. So it's a, it's a nasty aspect of the sport. It really is. And it's something that I think is mind boggling to a lot of people and, and things that, and in my mind too, we've gotten better. That's the one thing I will say. There were some pretty brutal strategies when I first got here. Um, you know, we're, we're still, it's still a work in progress. It's still something that, that we want to keep improving on, you know, not only for our fighters performance, but also just the health and well-being and safety and the long-term effects of metabolism and all of these fighters. For sure. And, you know, as you mentioned, they're kind of the art of the practice of taking that evidence base and being able to just apply what you can to upgrade what the athlete's already doing to, to kind of move the needle in the right direction. And, and Corey, you, you talked about kind of that post way into to fight night, um, the nutrition strategy being key there. Are there one or two things that for you um, really stand out that you want to get in, whether it's early fueling or a certain, you know, carbohydrate range or, or fueling range that you're looking for? Yeah, well, we, uh, so, you know, I'm fortunate enough to, to have a lot of great nutrition experts around me that have, you know, helped implement the, these strategies. Um, the one thing that I would say is probably a staple to our, to our rehydration protocols would be the, uh, would be the Celtic sea salt. Um, we've had a lot of success with that. Uh, some people have a hard time with it, so we may have to go with the Himalayan in that first rehive. But, you know, realistically, the first thing we have to do is just work backwards. You know, the, the last portion of the weight cut, we pulled water. We pulled whatever amount of sodium was left in the box. So we have to get that back in there first. That has to be a priority. Um, after that, we typically go with a supplement known as Vitargo. Um, great carbohydrate source and we're going to put that in second. So the idea is let's get sodium levels back. Let's try to absorb some of the water that, that we've lost throughout that cut. And then let's get, let's get the glycogen back up. You know, those two things to me are the, the, the key points that you have to be able to regulate properly. Um, with that said, I think that that fluid intake and that volume has to be regulated based on basically what the athlete's done all week. You know, how much weight were they losing each training session? How much weight were they putting on during things like water loading, depending on whether or not they're, you know, some of the, some of my larger athletes are aggressive water loaders. Uh, some of my middle size athletes are not as big for their weight class, are moderate water loaders. And some of the guys that, you know, stay relatively close to fight weight don't have to go to that extreme at all. So, you know, it, you really have to base it off of what they're, individual practices and and what we've developed over time and, and to be honest with you it takes time I, do i think what for sure myself and Aru are doing is absolutely 100 correct no and 
do I think every weight cut goes the same? No, it doesn't. I mean, there, there's different things. There's small there's changes in environment, changes in time zone. You know, di- these things really have affected our fighters. I, I think it's really strange, you know, just an observation. We were, we've, we've changed training facilities down here in South Florida where we're now in a, you know, a brand new, beautiful state-of-the-art warehouse, but there's no cooling system. Um, you know, it's, and it's brutal. It's brutal down here. So, you know, we put the doors up and, and I'll be honest with you, our guys pretty consistently are losing anywhere from about six to nine pounds per practice. And I'm starting to find all of those guys that really used to rely heavily on the water loading as part of their, their weight cut. We're, we're kind of, uh, eliminating it now. It, and, and I think it's a change it, to me. It's, it's the environment, that humidity that's in the room and, and that practice grind of them losing so much weight every single session that you don't really have to do it anymore. The body's used to losing that much weight. So even throwing them in a sweatsuit, put them down in a room, and you're losing three or four pounds quickly. And so it, wow. you know, it's something. It's something that's a. It's a new observation. Um, you know, I'm not 100 percent certain that's what it is, but I, w- I would have to think it's this this new environment and this humidity. So it's it's interesting to watch some of these changes. Um, you know, for my fighter fighting in London this week this is the first time that you know after his first workout over there and i saw how much he lost i was like don't you don't need to water load just just normal with that keep your fluid and take the same and we actually cut it out and you know this has been one of the easiest weight cuts he's had so far incredible yeah amazing how adaptable the body is and as you mentioned environment really being such a key part there and um really interesting to see how that moves forward with with some of your guys there and if, if we shift gears here a little bit, uh, Corey, to obviously head trauma is a part of the fight game. Um, obviously, yep. as a sports scientist, a researcher, you're always trying to do your best to limit the risk for fighters. And, and yep. for yourself and as a physiologist, as a strength coach, are there some fundamentals, whether it's on the physical, technical, tactical, even psychological side that can, that can help a fighter limit that risk? Yeah, I mean, I guess to, to limit the impact um, – we're very much we're we're very much neck training heavy down here. Um, it's it's not like you typically see you know just flexion extension fifteen times this way. Let's just get it in. Um, you know we program and and progress our neck work um, very aggressively down here. A uh, couple different things, whether it just be you know whether it be anti rotation, anti flexion, whether it be actual just flexion extension of the neck, and uh, we do a lot of shrug work as well. So, you know, it's, it's definitely a staple, even, even our focus lifts, um, you know, whether it be our deadlift, whether it be our, RPL, um, whether it be our power shrug, we usually advance that as we get closer to the fight into more of a speed-based movement that involves some form of a high pull shrug to make sure that we're stabilizing the neck. So from my aspect, I mean, that's really what I'm doing. Um, our coaching staff is, you know, we've, we've progressed quite a bit from the amount of, bu- the amount of sparring that we were doing earlier on, you know, years ago compared to what we're doing now, um, making guys a little bit safer, maybe making more, creating more focus depending on the rounds, whether it be more of a striking round, whether it be more of a grappling round to try to eliminate some of the, some of the contact and different things like that. Um, outside of that, we, myself, uh, one of your guests previously, Dr. Antonio, and uh, we, we paired up with a pair of uh, neuroscientists from Nova Southeastern University. And so we were actually in the middle of uh, some data collection 
looking at basically what's known as the CCL11 gene um, associated with early onset CTE and different things like that. So we're doing a lot of different work with um, NFL players and professional fighters right now, sort of looking at markers of inflammation, cortisol, and some of these proteins that they're starting to find have some form of association with um, traumatic brain injury and mild traumatic brain injury, CTE, and, and different things like that. So we're kind of really just starting that out. But uh, it, it's definitely really interesting data as I'm starting to analyze some of my guys that are currently fighting, some of my guys that have just recently retired, and same thing on the looking at it from the NFL front and also uh, soccer, looking at people that have had a lot of headers and concussions and things like that. So it, it's really interesting, and I think it's going to be really, really, really cool and advanced data when we when we get the amount of you know get the amount of subjects and athletes that we want. Yeah, it's really cool to advance that knowledge in, in the in the fields of neuropsychology and to really get more information out around these kind of brain behavior impacts here and. And athlete health, and you know, when, when did that get started, Corey? And uh, so, so myself, the who I just mentioned, Dr. Antonio and uh, Dr. Tartar, she's the, or I don't think I mentioned her, but she's the the neuroscientist. So we've put together an organization known as the Society for Neurosports. Um, so we will hold a our first annual conference this year in November, um, and it'll be down in South Florida, Deerfield Beach. So if you're interested in in anything in this, whether it be neuropsych, whether it be sports, whether it be concussions, whether it be brain injury, um, or you just want to hang out on the beach all day and pick up some science information. Um, it's going to, it's going to be pretty fun, uh, pretty cool, um, conference. We've got a lot of different good speakers and we're still lining that up. So, um, it'll be, so it'll, it'll be really, it'll be really interesting. Um, we're creating a certification as well. So there'll be a certificate that sort of focuses, analyzes more on that aspect of marrying exercise and, and neuropsych together. Um, you know, more of how to handle certain neurological disorders and, and different things like that through exercise based evidence and practice. So, um, it's, it's going to be a lot of fun. You know, we're still in the, still on the ground floor with it. And, um, you know, we're just having fun really awesome well definitely yeah include a link there in the show notes for sure sounds like a great event and it you know as we talk head trauma here this segues into how it you know it impacts sleep and of course in a significant way and you recently did some research in mma fighters um sleep data physical performance injury preparation you know can you talk a little bit about how that study came to be yeah so we we were fortunate enough um a couple years back about two years back to have a group of our athletes be involved in a reality uh, TV series. And um, so we had them monitored, you know, basically in for the entire fight camp, for the entire thing. It was, you know, in my mind, it's, it's a real world study, but in my mind, it was as close to a lab based study in terms of the control that was that was given you know they were they were in an environment where they didn't have access to electronics tv different things like that so it was really just preparation and fighting and uh you know so as we analyzed them over their six-week period of you know basically preparation and then fighting uh we were able to analyze and, and look at different markers of performance and winning and and different things like that so long story short the the outcome, or I guess the biggest thing that we found was 
you know, in my mind was basically quality over quantity. It didn't matter if the athletes were sleeping four or five hours a night. If they were consistent with their sleeping patterns, we were seeing the athletes perform better. Now, in my mind, I know people are listening to that and say, well, that's stupid. You don't sleep four or five hours. But in my mind, it's this. That window that we analyzed these athletes was only six weeks. It was a six-week period where you know, where we were regulating the nervous system through scheduled practices. So in my mind, is it sustainable over an entire career? No, it's not. But in that little short period that I think is called fight camp, I think the idea of being consistent, I mean, you know, the athletes are already going to be sympathetically driven throughout the thing, the stressors of training, the stress, thinking about fighting a grown man in a cage in front of 15. <laughs> Definitely. There's a stress response to that. Um, so for, for whatever reason, you know, we, we found that these athletes that were being able, basically being able to just turn it on and shut it off at the right times were, were performing better than those athletes that would, you know, even get more sleep or sleep for 10 hours one day, two hours this day, five hours the next day. So it was really consistency over anything, uh, utilizing those rest times between training sessions, even if it was, you know, 25 minutes of actual sleep between a session and five hours of sleep in the evening before your morning session, uh, we finding more success with that. Yeah, it's amazing how consistency is so important across so many different domains and of course sleep being another one of them and um, interesting to see those those results. And as you mentioned there, obviously a training camp is really sympathetically driven. You got to get into a ring and fight, um, you know, a competitor. Yeah. Is there room here for, you know, as you, as you, if you think about kind of having nutrition on point, the training plan, things like sleep, when we look at um, recovery modalities, you know, are there opportunities there, do you think, for, for using different, uh, whether it's, um, you know, whether it's float tanks or the devices to help reduce that, that sympathetic drive? Do you have strategies perhaps that you like or, or in terms of your thoughts around that whole, that whole topic? Yeah, uh, I would say the two things that we've been the most with would be any form of cryotherapy, whether it be, you know, in my mind, I like the cold tub better than anything else. Um, but, you know, we, we do have a cryotherapy chamber, so some athletes like to just get in and get out. Um, you know, the Normatec boots and looking at, looking at lower body pressure, I think, has been relatively successful. You know, in my mind, a lot of people ask me this question, what do you think works? What do you think is best? And, and you know, if you go out there and you look at any of these, look at the flow take, look at cryotherapy, look at, you know, look at ice tubs, look at that stuff. Some people are going to tell you, hey, they're great. Some people are going to tell you they're a waste of time based on research. You know, it's, it's all over the board. Absolutely. In, my, in my mind, any form or any modality that forces my athlete to sit down, to bring their body back as close to stasis as we possibly can is I'm okay with. And that's really the, the major factor because just getting these guys to sit down and focus on recovery for 15, 20 minutes in my mind is a win, whatever the modality may be. Yeah, it is amazing to see, you know, even at the highest levels in different sports, how different performance teams will, will be skewed potentially to certain modalities versus others. And as you mentioned, the research being sort of, you know, somewhat unclear in a sense of, of what can work and when it can work. And, and it's, uh, it's amazing to see how many people like yourself come back to that idea of just, if, if it helps the athlete to get into that state and, and get into that mode, then, then the one that they like the best is oftentimes the, the best choice, right? Exactly. For them, for them to acknowledge recovery as part of their camp, as a scheduled portion of their camp, whether it be like we said, right after a session, just an acute 
um, form of recovery or whether it be something like massage, acupuncture, some of the things that they're doing, um, you know, that, that has to be a part of it. We, we purpose when we schedule camp and when we lay an athlete's camp out as coaches, you know, that they're those nights off. If you give them, if you give one of these guys a template that just has a night off, they're going to lose their minds. They, they just, it's just the, it's the nature of this sport, the, the wrestlers, the Brazilian jiu-jitsu guys that they should be doing something two, three times a day. So when, whenever we give them their, their template, you know, recovery is put into those spots and you know, this is the night that you're going to get your massage. This is the night you do this. And you know, every athlete's a little different in what they do. Um, you know, like I said, some people are, you know, we have some, a lot of, a lot of athletes that are fighting in one championship and, you know, from Southeast Asia and they've really, they, they really prefer acupuncture and some of, some of those modalities of what are considered non-traditional medicine and, uh, you know, it's, it's funny to see how that spread into some of our other athletes that are, you know, more Western medicine and, and different things like that. Yeah, it's fascinating stuff, Corey. And, uh, you know, we talked about obviously preparing for fights and recovery. When we look at things like monitoring as you're going through uh, over a season or a training camp, as you push guys into that sort of, you know, functional overreaching or non-functional overreaching overtraining, you know, are there right. certain flags that you're looking for, whether it's across a, a, a series of different um, testing modalities or, or even just subjectively from the athlete? What are some of the things that stand out for you? So I do have a, a system that I have with, with every athlete um, where, where I'm getting subjective feedback from each athlete. Um, it's just an online system known as Metrofit. Basically, what they're doing is just reporting to me how they – what the quality of their sleep was, what the quality of their nutrition was that day and the intensity of their training in terms of how they feel. Um, so I always think that's important to understand what the athlete's perception was of the given session. And then, you know, being able to correlate that with what coach thought he was, you know, he was doing to the athlete. Um, we use heart rate monitors. Uh, we use Omega wave and we do sleep sleep monitoring devices. So, you know, some athletes, and that's kind of the, the tricky thing is really gaining the baseline knowledge. I feel like a lot of people want to, you know, uh, sports science is, is really a cool thing right now and, and people want to get involved. But the one thing I can say about that is, you know, be careful when you're implementing these things right off the bat. Like, you know, it, not every athlete fits the 220 minus your age model. Not every athlete. For sure. Not, not every athlete. Excuse me that you're accustomed to and probably the algorithms that are already set in these pieces of equipment. You know, when I look at something like Omega Wave, um, you know, it, it, it's a very nice heart rate ability monitoring tool that basically gives you a, a very user-friendly look at metabolism, at cardiovascular stress, um, and neurological stress. Well, here's the deal. It's, it's a color system, and guess what? When you're in red, that means we're not where we want to be. Well, look at somebody like Kamar Usman, who's won a world title. There's not a point in time that he's not in the red in every category. So it's the idea of being able to look at the back end, to understand where those things come from, and figure out, okay, so this is the norm for him. This is where we should be concerned, rather than looking at some of the, you know, just the, the tools. Same thing with things like sleep and stuff like that. You know, a lot of these sports science devices and things to – to, to prevent that, use numbering system, something, you know, one through 100, 100 being the best and whatever the case may be. And you, sometimes you just have athletes that sit at a sit, uh, sit at a position where you, it, for, for whatever that system 
is it's not a good reading, but the athlete is performing extremely well. So, you know, you just have to really, really keep that in mind and figure out what devices work. You know, I have about three different devices, not on each athlete. I have one device on every athlete and whatever it is that they respond best to over the time that I've gotten to know them um, is typically what we stand for. Uh, you know, and another thing you got to be careful with is, you know, some of these devices become stressful to the athlete. You know, when, it, you know, thinking about somebody like tomorrow seeing red, red, red across the board, thinking what the hell is wrong with me, it becomes a stressful, you know, just becomes one, more, yeah. becomes one more stressor on the athlete. So you really got to pick and choose wisely what, what you're using. But I would say between heart rate variability, between sleep monitoring and between just basic heart rate monitoring through sessions and, and subjective reporting, I think we've been able to, to really put a, uh, you know, put a good lock on that idea of really preventing as best as possible the, the overreaching. I mean, these athletes are wild and you don't know what they're going to be doing outside of closed doors. They might be running miles at night just because they feel like they have to. And, but that's the, that's the beauty of seeing some of this data and stuff, being able to show them that, you know, Hey, this, this wasn't a benefit to your training. Um, you know, Chris Algieri, who's, you know, a business partner of mine, he, he handles a lot of my, my highest level sports nutrition, um, for, for, you know, people like Vulcan Ozdemir and Michael Chandler and, and guys like that, where he really does a one-on-one -on -one approach to taking them through the fight. Um, and it takes a lot of stress off of me. Um, so, you know, Dr. Coleman as well, who, who handles a lot, a lot of that bulk as well with with a lot of our up-and-coming fighters and, and different things like that. But, um, you know, he, he's done such a, you know, Chris is a guy who, who's done such a good job and is aware of the science behind things, but you also have to remember, he's a fighter. At the end of the day, he's still an active fighter. He's still a professional fighter, former, former world champion, and just so happens that he has a, you know, a master's degree in sports nutrition and is a very intelligent, uh, you know, very intelligent fighter. But the idea of, being able to show him different training things and show him that the stuff that he was doing was detrimental to his performance was really key. And he and I working together. I mean, that, that, that's what I'll say when I had Chris monitored for the first time, I think he was still on the fence of whether or not he and I would, would be working together. And this was when I was just working as his physiologist, not working as business partners or anything like that. Mm -hmm. um, you know, and, I, and I had to go back to the data and show him like, Hey, Chris, I know you like to do this six, seven mile run, on the weekend because of this, but like, look at your data compared to what your data looks like when you're fighting, when you're in the ring, you know, you're, you're stressing yourself out. You're putting a lot of, you know, you're, you're destroying yourself on the weekends with this run. Let's, let's back this off. Let's take this into some sprint work, keep the same duration, but let's work this into some sprint work and, and let's figure out how your body responds to that. And you know, that that's been, that was one of the biggest adjustments. I think somebody like Chris could make to his training that very much influences next fight against Eric Bonet. You know, he, you know, he looked great. And, you know, he said the same thing. He didn't, he, every Monday was always his worst day. I think it was something he was doing on the weekend that, that was contributing to that, you know, the, the amount of training he was doing, you know, Saturday, Sunday and, and different things like that. So, you know, the data, the data is the data. You have to be able to use it to your advantage, but you also have to be able to be a coach at the same time. I mean, that's just as important. The science is cool, but you have to be able to understand how to implement it and make sure that it's the best, you know, the best possible data and the best information to be able to relay that back to your athletes. Yeah, I mean, so much wear and tear just by nature of the training in MMA fighters. And as you mentioned, if you're just adding 
sort of junk miles or junk sessions in there that uh, is just going to add up. So it's a great point there. And, and around even the on the data side of things, obviously, yeah, really getting that raw data, being able to personalize things to the athlete. Because as you mentioned, if you're just working off some of these numbers or colors or whatnot that you're getting in, I mean, it's, it's really not going to be uh, tailored to that individual who obviously in your case is going to be on that elite level. Um, and that took I mean, that, that took time. That took time to really figure out the system and understand what the numbers were. A lot of hours on the phone with different representatives from the from the company itself, trying to figure out what everything means, and you know, and that that's the biggest thing. So make sure you understand your data before you start implementing these things. That, that's the biggest thing. Don't go in there slapping omega on somebody for the first time and say, "Well, shit, look, your cardiovascular system's done. Listen, we're going to have to call the day." No, 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 no. Get some time to understand them. I mean. At least collect a camp. I mean, if you're talking about a fighter, at least collect a camp's worth of data before you start implementing things. If you're looking at a professional sports team, you know, that, like let's just say American football that competes, you know, one season a year, collect an entire season of data before you try to implement anything. You know, that's that's the biggest thing that I can that I can recommend to anybody trying to go out there and use the sports science stuff because you'll have a better understanding and you'll be able to you'll your application will be much much better. Yeah, great, great advice there. And, you know, Corey, at the end of the day, obviously performance to practitioners, coaches, athletes, it's winning and losing, right? And in the fight game, I mean, that's definitely a brutal reality, um, even amongst all elite sports here. So when we look at combat sports performance and the evolution of research in area, in this area, you know, where do you think that's going in the next sort of five or 10 years? You know, the one thing I will say, there are a lot of great there. There are a lot of great sports scientists and researchers out there that are doing some great work. You got you know Dr. Andy Galpin out in California, who's who's collecting a lot of high level mixed martial arts data and presenting it. You have a lot of people down in the Brazil and you know down in Brazil that are doing the same thing at the universities. So I, I really think the, this is. I mean, just looking at it, if you find something like baseball, American football, there's a lot of research out there, and there's been a lot research that's been done over the years and it's probably a testament to the idea that the sport's been you know the sport's been around for a long time and it's been very popular it's a brand new sport i mean the sport just broke 20 years you know recently and when you're looking at the research i mean there's there's not a lot of stuff out there so you know five years from now and we're still going to be in that kind of that beginning beginning phase of really reporting this data understanding these athletes um you know i think in 15, 20 years down the road, I think in terms of the research, I think a lot of the a lot of the brain stuff and the overall health stuff that we're doing, I think is going to be huge. I think there's going to be a lot of research in the weight cutting area with these particular athletes, and I think that's going to be extremely beneficial for the sport as well. Um, and I think overall, I think the the training volume and and those different things, um, I, I think that's going to be top of the line. I know the the UFC Performance Institute has done some really good has really good data dr french has uh you know put together a lot of good stuff showing kind of the trends in the sport in terms of amount on the ground contact things like that and i think that's all just going to be a precursor to better understanding the sport yeah fascinating fascinating stuff here Corey. i mean the complexities uh, of working with fighters on the nutrition front training uh medical mindset really really just incredible and you know you're part of a group here as well whose mission it is to educate and upskill coaches and trainers in, in these areas. Can you talk to me a little bit about the uh, Fight Science Institute? Yes. Uh, Fight Science Institute is uh, another organization that um, that I've helped co-found. And, um, you know, it, it's a collaboration between myself 
uh, who really kind of, I would say my role is the sports science, um, you know, the, the sports scientist of the group. We have Dr. Mike Camp, who would be the sports medicine. We have uh, Dr. Tony Ricci out in New York, who also works with a ton of elite athletes out of uh, basically Longo Wadman's camp up in New York. And uh, he's, I mean, he's a brilliant man. And he's, he's our, basically the president of the entire organization. And we have Chris Algieri, who I previously mentioned as our sports nutrition and who's the head strength coach at American Top Team as our strength and conditioning guy. And I mean, realistically, our, our mission is not only certifying, but making sure that there's evidence-based practice behind what what people are doing. I mean, the, the sport's very much behind in the times. And, and I will say that, you know, you're looking at, look at, you know, look at professional sports, look at CAA football and different things like that. Every coach now is required to have adequate education, adequate certification, um, you know, and those steps in improving the safety and the longevity of these you know of these athletes and i think that's something that's missing in mixed martial arts so the idea of being able to show that approach of how to integrate those different things between nutrition sports medicine strength and conditioning along with mma is is extremely extremely beneficial and it's going to go along for a lot of these young aspiring up-and-coming uh, strength and conditioning, nutrition, sports science coaches that that want to be involved in the field. Um, overall, you know that's our mission to to educate and hopefully improve the quality of the coaching and you know the the longevity of the fighters as a result of that. Awesome, Corey. That's uh, that's tremendous. And you know I could pick your brain here all day, but definitely want to respect your time. So you know where can people stay connected with you and keep up with all the projects that you've got on the go? I would say the easiest thing would be either my website at www.peacockperformance.com or just go to Instagram, Dr. C. Peacock, and I think that would be the easiest way to find me. Um, you know, a lot of guys, a lot of guys fighting this up and coming month. But like I said, we just had Kamar Usman win the title. Uh, we have Vulcan Ozdemir and Danny Roberts fighting in UFC London tomorrow. Uh, we have Linton Vassell fighting in Bellator. Or Oklahoma next the following week. I have Michael Johnson, Desmond Green fighting in UFC Philadelphia this month, and Unlan Sang defending his middleweight title for One FC over in Singapore. So it's a busy month. Amazing, so for sure, this is the time to start following and watching what we're doing because it's you know it's it's that time right now. It's it's time to peak. It's time to taper. It's time to watch these guys perform, and you know hoping for the best for all of them. Phenomenal, man. We'll definitely keep our eyes on those uh, fights and include the links here to the papers discussed in the show notes uh, at drbubs.com forward slash podcast. Thanks again, Corey, for taking the time. Thanks again for everyone else who've tuned in here today. If you have any questions for Corey or want to leave a comment on today's episode, I'd love to hear from you. You can reach out on Facebook, Instagram, or Twitter at drbubs. Of course, if you enjoyed the show, take a minute, subscribe on YouTube, iTunes, or your favorite podcasting platform. And make sure to send out a tweet, post on Facebook, add to your Instagram story to share Corey's tremendous insights here today. Awesome. Thanks again, guys, and we'll see you all next week. The Dr. Bubbs Performance Podcast endeavors to provide accurate and helpful information to listeners. These podcasts cannot take into account individual circumstances and are not intended to be a substitute for health and medical advice from a qualified health professional. You should always seek the advice of a qualified health professional before acting on any of the information provided by any of the Dr. Bubbs Performance Podcasts.